Hi there. Before we get started, we'd like to tell you about 25, the SEA's new magazine. Issue 2 is out now. This season, our team of contributors tackle a series of topics from Arabica's shrinking market share to insights from the specialty cheese industry. Read Issue 2 of 25 Magazine on our website at seanews.coffee forward slash 25. That's seanews.coffee forward slash 25. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the SCA Lectures podcast series, brought to you by Olam Specialty Coffee, connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees. The following is a talk presented live at the 2017 Global Specialty Coffee Expo, the largest annual gathering of specialty coffee professionals. All right, good morning, everyone. My name is Tori. I am one of the room hosts for this lecture, and I'd like to welcome you to the role and importance of sensory science in coffee. Um, before I introduce our speaker, um, we put surveys on your chairs. If you could fill those out after the lecture, it really helps um, us get some feedback. We have some pens in the back of the room if you do not have a pen, and you can turn those into us when you're exiting the room. I'd also like to encourage you to download the app um, for the expo. It's a really helpful tool for navigating the resources here. So I'd like to introduce Maya Zuniga, food scientist for S&D Coffee and Tea. Dr. Zuniga has been at S&D Coffee and Tea for four plus years. She's currently in global procurement and applying technical expertise to supply chain optimization and synergies as part of a larger initiative with the COT acquisition. Prior experience includes 17 years at General Mills and Pillsbury in multiple roles in the areas of product development, purchasing, open innovation, and holistic category management. She has honed skills in delivering high-quality results in a timely, cost-effective manner across multiple product platforms. Her skill set spans strategy and category development, including a global perspective across several categories such as dairy, flavors, hydrocolloids, chemicals, and specialty ingredients. She also has a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry, an MS and PhD in Food Science. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Zuniga. Thank you, Tori and Mackenzie. Um, you know, as I'm sure all of you, the original speaker, you noticed that there's someone missing. Uh, my collaborator and um, now absent co-presenter, Dr. Sean Steinman, actually could not make it, but I'm sure that you will agree with me that he had a very, very good reason. And um, in his own words, he is currently very busy training his newest barista. So um, I'm sure you know, we all uh, wish him well on his new journey into parenthood. But as I mentioned, um, he will be missed, but we did collaborate strongly on this, co-wrote it, and I will do my best to represent his thoughts as well as mine. So welcome, and I will take any questions at the end of the presentation. So as far as what we're going to talk about today, we'll start off with a brief history of sensory science, move into very basic elements of what this science is about, um, relate sensory science to cupping, which inadvertently actually is a way of applying sensory science, and then we'll move into why cupping can be a real benefit when you develop a formal sensory program. I will give some suggestions on how to build a formal sensory program, and I'll also cover, um, actually depending on interest level, you know, the latest sensory science tools that were introduced just last year, and those are the flavor wheel and the lexicon, which, as you'll continue to hear about, 
um, are great tools to add to your toolbox to really apply sensory science and help with making those sound business decisions um, as you uh, have your own adventures in the world of coffee. So starting with the history, um, sensory science is actually a relatively young science compared to others. It was started around the mid-19th uh, century, and it was actually started by physicists and psychologists who were really interested in understanding if there was a way to develop a predictive model for the way people respond to changes in stimuli in their environment. And, you know, that work um, really led to the evolution of uh, sensory science. And, in fact, some basic principles were applied um, in the 1930s when the USDA actually laid out um, safety guidelines and regulations around processing of canned goods in the 1930s. But it really wasn't until around World War II when the soldiers weren't eating their meal rations. And as you can imagine at that time, dried, compact food was not very tasty or appealing. And it became obviously a serious issue because you had you know, soldiers who needed their energy and their nutrition not getting it. So it really motivated, um, it, at that time it was the food container and Canning Institute of the U.S. Army Quartermaster Corps. It's a mouthful. Um, they really started working on efforts to understand. It was a, a mix of food scientists and psychologists who really started working on trying to find the appeal. You know, how do you gauge the, and apply these basic sensory principles into developing foods that were just more appealing? And so there were actually a lot of uh, great sensory tests developed with that Food Container Institute that are still applied today. And the first formal sensory science program was actually um, at UC Davis in the 1960s. So at its core, sensory science is really about understanding how we respond to sensory stimuli. So it's, it's you know, continuing to build on that very initial premise of can we find a way to measure it objectively if we can measure it objectively, we can analyze it, interpret it, and then obviously use it in a consistent manner. Interestingly enough, though, sensory science involves using humans as measuring tools. And I'll get into some of the challenges of that here in a little bit. Um, but it is part of properly implementing the science gets you away from having that single expert and I know there's a lot of people in this room that know their coffee well. They know what they're tasting. Um, but from a business standpoint, from a long-term sustainability standpoint, you want to be able to make sure that you can share that experience and be objective in terms of how you're communicating with your colleagues so they can appreciate your expertise. So humans as measuring tools, and as Sean said, they're generally terrible. Um, not because of anything other than the fact that we are human. Our perception is our reality, but our experiences are unique. We have a different number of taste buds. We have different sensitivity to different elements. Um, everything makes that unique and is part of what we enjoy as humans, but it could get us into real challenges when you're trying to be objective. So sensory science really strives, after, you know, through all the 150 years and the advances we've made, 
um, found ways to reduce that subjectivity that we introduce as individuals, and it discovers and addresses those errors, which are not really errors, um, and our inherent biases, so that what it amounts to is proper training, and that is really what's critical for those objective and accurate measurements. So applying sensory tools, you know, so we've got humans who are highly subjective. Let's combine that with coffee, which is one of the most complex beverages that, that we consume. Uh, you know, when you think of the chemical structure, genetic makeup, um, our sensory experience for that cup that is in our hand is so dependent on that journey that the bean had. When you think of where was it grown, how was it grown, how was it processed, how was it picked, how was it stored, how was it shipped, how was it brewed. Um, you know, there are so many elements that could introduce variations that the flavor nuances could change that it really is um, a highly subjective experience, and it, they could be very different. So it almost seems like there is a limitless number of profiles out there, but again, um, you know, if we can apply sensory science to get to objective measurement, it really does facilitate bringing in more objectivity into our, our ability to learn more about the coffee. So cupping um, actually utilizes sensory science principles. Um, you know, we're interacting with all of our senses. And even though it was not formally developed under sensory science, um, it inadvertently actually contains some great practices. And I'm sure most people in here have cupped, so very familiar with, with what I'm talking about. So sensory science, you know, what just by definition um, is our ability to draw or engage all five of our senses. So formal definition, it's the identification and interpretation of the attributes of a product as they are perceived through the five senses of sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. So essentially, we use sensory science principles to take all of this subjective data and turn it into more objective data that we can then interpret, analyze, and use to get to better communication. So as I mentioned, cupping uses all five senses. So sight, the color of the beans, you start, as soon as you see it, you start trying to determine, is this a light roast, is this a dark roast? Um, does it have the oily resin, you know, residue at the top? Um, you immediately start assessing from sight. Olfaction, which is basically as you inhale, you break the coffee and you get in those wonderful aromas, for the most part, unless it's a defect. Um, and, you know, you start assessing what it might taste like. As you touch it, you slurp it onto your tongue. You start feeling the body. You start assessing, you know, is it sweet, is it acidic? And you get into the taste part. And then, of course, the sound, which is slurping. Um, and it does, um, it, it takes those individualized, subjective experiences and it can really um, help us start determining what, what it is we're tasting. So we've engaged all of our senses in cupping, but that's the first part of the sensory science. So we've engaged our senses, but how do we get to replicating that information, to making it more um, consistent in terms of how we're able to, to share that information with our colleagues, right? So we have the other virtues that are presence is we, we do replicate. 
we, for any particular lot, you don't just take one cup from it. You usually have five to six cups per lot because you're looking for consistency or inconsistency in that. So those multiple cups actually help from a statistical standpoint to capture any variation in that particular population. Using the spoon um, as opposed to just sipping from the cup, the spoon helps to ensure you're hopefully pulling the same amount each time. Um, The tasting technique of slurping um, is better facilitated. And then, of course, usually you're using your standardized brewing conditions because if you're preparing samples to evaluate, you will typically uh, use the same brewing conditions unless it's different brewing conditions as you're evaluating. So the other, so those are definitely some of the virtues already present in the way we cup today. Um, other informal practices that we have in coffee is, granted it could be highly subjective, is you already determine What's my acceptability criteria? How do I rate a coffee? What do I like about it that makes it acceptable or not? Um, Deciding what coffee to roast. It could be based on a personal preference. Well, I like darker roast. I like more chocolatey, earthy notes versus light, fruity, um, brighter coffees. Um, Personal preference. Or it could be marketplace popularity. I'm sure... You know, you see a lot of competition um, with a lot of uh, larger producers right now that are just trying to drive, you know, whether it's cold brew um, with different flavor profiles. It's, you know, do you decide as a personal, uh, whether for your business, do you want to go with coffees that you see are selling for other people or is it more personal based on your preference? Um, how you determine your roasting parameters because again not every coffee will taste good dark roasted some of them are better if you you get a better flavor profile if you do a lighter roast so just understanding that you already as we brew we determine the final prep method all of these are ways that we are already informally using sensory practices in the way we manage coffee today But there is a distinct advantage to formalizing that approach. Um, Some of the key outputs of being able to do sensory in a more formal way has to do with developing a sound quality control or assurance program, um, creating specifications, building product knowledge. What, What can you... How can you use sensory to really understand the coffee and the flavor profiles that you're producing? I know that for most roasters, they're really trying to understand the flavors so that they can communicate that to their customers. Um, Sensory science is a way to do that. Uh, You might have a particular target consumer group that you want to go after. You need to talk to your consumers and get that feedback, but you can't just go talk to them randomly on the street. You've got to find a way to streamline the communication, streamline the questions you ask them. And then all of those can really help you um, make critical business decisions. And the the more comfortable you are with the soundness of that data that you get, um, the better position you'll be in to decide, here's my lineup of coffees that I want to roast, or here's how I want to manage an economic uh, uh, situation if I need to work with something of a lower grade. All of these are benefits. And so for each of these, I'll actually go through in greater detail um, how, about, how those actually play out. So having a sound quality control and assurance program. You need to know what coffee is coming in so that you can understand what you can 
put out to your customers. Um, you don't do that just by taking every lot and going, okay, yep, this one looks good. I'll just wait and see what the other lot might show up. You need to ensure that you are specifying what it is you need from your suppliers so that you can be assured of what product you have to work with for what you want to send out the door. Um, if you're making any claims on that product, is it organic? Is it a single origin? Is it fair trade? There's a certain amount of paperwork and certification that needs to happen. And you need to be aware of what those steps are to ensure that you are within compliance before you can put that stamp on your product. Um, the way you set up process control and, and limits, you know, what coffee do I roast to what level, um, what grind size, all of these are things that encompass good quality control because if you know that, hey, this, this particular yogurt chef I have coming in, I want to ensure that it's always a nice light roast, you need to set those parameters because you don't want to accidentally do a darker roast and, and ruin the flavor you're going for. Because um, then that leads to ensuring your customer is satisfied. If, if you label it a particular way and they get a different tasting product, they're not going to be very happy. So just ensuring having these quality measures in place ensures that you have a product that you can guarantee good performance and consistency with. So sensory science will help you put that program together. Um, specifications, when you, kind of an output, as you set your parameters for each of your flavor profile, you capture that with documentation. Um, you define what your acceptability and criteria are. So you can only have so many defects, whether it's physical defects or taints. Um, you define you know, what the quality of the beans are, what the grades are. All of those are how you capture that, document it, and you use that to communicate with your suppliers. So then they know what you're expecting, and you can hold them to that when you contract with them. So you use specifications for communicating and setting the, the quality criteria that you want for your product. Having specifications also ensures that you're always replicating for a particular flavor profile. You're always going to get the same end product because you're always following the same parameters. And from a legal or regulatory standpoint, it ensures that you're complying because on your specification, you capture the different certifications that you have for a particular profile. Product knowledge. And this one I'm, resonates with me as a, a, a you know, product scientist or product developer by training because, and I'm sure for anyone that you know, obviously is passionate about coffee, um, the more you can understand about the product, what it tastes, what it is that could impact that taste, um, understanding if there's some seasonality that could drive taints and defects, you know, um, how do you process it to get the best cup to your consumer, um, understanding when you might need to reformulate because you're getting some variations. I mean, coffee is an agricultural product. So there is inherent variation that will happen no matter, you know, it might not rain as much one year. So now you have lower grade product. How do you manage that and still develop a blend that your consumers are happy with? Um, understanding the shelf life and the packaging requirements, how long would you like, you know, what t type of film, if you really need to protect it, nitrogen flushing, all of those are things that if you know what your product and how it behaves, then you know how to package it, to present it, to maintain and deliver 
um, expectations to your consumer. Consumer knowledge. So who is this coffee going to, right? Who is the end user? Who do you want enjoying and being able to appreciate this great-tasting product? Uh, different people, again, as I mentioned, we're all subjective. So I remember Sean telling a story about how um, you know he encountered a farmer who was growing what everyone was, it was this geisha that everyone was just raving about. And, you know, of course, he offered to have him taste it, and he's like, wow, he could see why everyone was raving about it. But the interesting thing to him was the farmer didn't like it, and he was just floored because he's like, how could you not like this phenomenal cup of coffee? But again, it came down to it might not have met what his taste preferences were in terms of what he considered to be a good cup. And that's where you have to appreciate each other's perspectives because what might might enjoy will not be the same thing that you enjoy. But we can at least find a way through making the data more objective, we find a way to at least share each other's experiences and then you can agree that that is a good cup, it's just not for me. So... That's how applying your consumer knowledge, understanding what your consumers prefer. Obviously, if it's selling well, you want to make more of it. So if it's not selling, then you might discontinue. It just depends on what your business model is and what your vision is for how you want to introduce your consumers to um, your coffees. And sometimes, like I mentioned before, if there's seasonality and you have to compensate for those variations, you might have a difference in the way the flavor profile tastes. Well, what if the consumers can tell? Do they even care? So these are all the different, you know, whether it's consumer testing that you do to learn more about your consumers, um, and then that helps you understand what products are you offering to your consumers, how do you communicate with them to let them know, hey, well, this blend just got tweaked, or you might call it something different. So there's just different ways as you're managing, you know, a crop uh, coffee or agricultural product that has a lot of variation, Century Science helps you to find the best ways to communicate those differences and let your consumers know how to better appreciate your product. So from a business decision standpoint, um, you know, you can, as I mentioned, you can use the information that you get to really help you make better business decisions that make you more comfortable with the products going out the door. So which products are liked best or least? Which ones may need reformulation? What is it about a particular profile that someone likes? Because, again, depending on the consumers, maybe in your neighborhood, they may do better with darker roasts. They may do better with fruity, chocolatey mixes versus lighter, more acidic, or brighter notes. So all of these are things that, as you find out more, um, it really helps you determine what it is you want to do for your business, what's working uh, for you to get the best product out the door. So building a century program, right? How, how do you go about building this great program? Um, the first thing is you really need to understand your needs. So whether you're you know, a, a starter, um, not a lot of resources, you just want to get some good product out the door, and then what's your, you know, what are your, what's your budget like? What are you operating with? Um, what do you want to do in terms of presenting this product to, to people and helping them appreciate it? Um, defining your objectives. And this is, you know, I 
uppercase this because it's really important that you understand what questions you want to answer so that you can ask the right questions. Um, you know, what's the secret to happiness? That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> what's the best taste in coffee? That's a great question. Um, but you can see where it's not something you just go, oh, I'll, I'll just get right on that and go figure that out. You need to figure out, well, what does that really mean to me? So what's the best coffee that I want to sell but I can afford to make? What are my capabilities um, in terms of, you know, I, I cannot go to anywhere in the world. So what region, am I just operating with a particular region in the world? And therefore you'd start testing just those coffees. So it's, it's really understanding what questions apply to you and then you lay out um, identifying the correct type of testing and the correct type of method to help you get to where you want to, to go. And a key part of that is around sensory training and calibrating. So even, I think, for um, companies that are smaller where there aren't a lot of people, you can still make sure you're all speaking the same language, and that comes with the sensory training and calibrating, which we will get into in, in much greater detail here. But it's really key that if you can implement that training, you start doing things in a more standardized, streamlined way, you start becoming more objective in terms of how you're generating your information. And then you're better able to communicate that to the people both internally as well as externally to, to your particular uh, business. And as I mentioned before, these consistent methods, it has to do with consistency. You have to be consistent in the methods that you're using, the way you're evaluating things. And this is where cupping, as I mentioned, is already used and well implemented. Um, but we now also have the flavor wheel and the lexicon, as well as there are other sensory tests. Again, depending on your needs, um, you have other sensory tests that you can use to help with getting the information about your product and everything else, right? You, you are... If you want to get good at something, you practice and you practice. And it's the same thing with coffee. If you want to become a better taster, it's constant repetition and practice. And then certainly if you decide you want to start um, understanding if where there are differences, if you tweak a, a particular blend and you wanted to understand if there was a difference between it, you would actually use maybe a, a triangle test um, where you'd have three samples, two are the same, one's different, and if you have a group of people and no one can tell the difference, they can't pick out the odd sample, guess what? You tweaked it and it, it was an insignificant change. If, someone, if people could tell that it was different. You know, so those are the just basic tests that you can utilize, again, depending on questions that you're looking to answer. So I mentioned a lot about calibration, speaking the same language. What is it? Um, calibration is really agreement or alignment on what it is you're tasting. And it's using the same vocabulary and the same scale and reference points when you're talking about something. So I can imagine, you know, we're sitting around, we taste a cup of coffee, and someone says, I pick up fruity notes. And you're tasting and going, I don't know if I get fruity notes. I think I get maybe some sour um, or acidic. 
And so getting to understanding how we interpret our uh, what we're tasting, because a lot of it, you know, as you would expect, right? Our experiences, um, there's a cultural impact. Everything, as far as how we perceive taste, has an impact on, on all of those factors have an impact on how we perceive taste. So I remember, um, even for me personally, someone was saying, you know, this, this has strawberry, or uh, sorry, tomato. This, this tastes like it's got tomato notes. And I'm going, I think it's more like a savory hint. You know, I, I don't get tomato. Well, as it turns out, I'm picking up on the common element is tomatoes have what's called a, an umami uh, note, which is, it lends itself, it's a glutamate compound, it lends itself to a meaty savoriness. So what they were describing as tomato-y I was describing as umami or savory. We were both picking up on the same thing, but we were perceiving it differently. So what you do when you're calibrating is you decide, well, if this is that note, we need to decide either we're going to call it tomato-y or we're going to call it uh, savory. But you have to agree then that every time you get that note, you categorize it the same way. So that's how you calibrate with each other and make sure that when you're describing, you're describing it in the same way, even though you might be perceiving it based on your own frame of reference. And the same thing with the scale and the reference points is if you have a standard that you're comparing against, that's where it comes in really handy to say, oh, so when I taste that, even though I might have thought and always called it savory, I need to reprogram myself to start calling it tomato-y or tomato. So, you know, that whole calibration process leads to objective analysis because then every time you taste that note, you're able to call it the same thing, and then if you have a reference point of where it's considered high and low, you're then able to rank it and agree on where it falls in that intensity rating. So how do you get calibrated? Um, You have to start with defining the vocabulary and the descriptors that you're going to use because, again, You want to make sure you're not introducing new terms every time you taste, that you can always work within the same terms that you have agreed to and developed. You need to define the scales that you're actually working with. Are we going to use a five-point scale where zero is nothing and five is extreme and the middle is somewhere in between? Or are we going to do actually what was done with lexicon and they used a 15-point scale? where they really zoned in on iterations. They went from zero to slight to moderate to, you know, um, all the way up to extremes, but they had better delineation in terms of getting at a higher level of accuracy in how they were picking up their their intensities. Um, So you want to define those scales and, again, make sure that everyone's using the same thing. Um, Identifying your references and standards. So... Again, we'll get to it in the lexicon. They actually identify, if we say blueberry, Smucker's blueberry. Go have it. Here's how you prepare it. And that's what we mean when we say you pick up a blueberry note in coffee. And then ensuring that you're staying calibrated. Because like with everything else, you train. And if you don't frequently taste and apply it, you will get drift. You will start losing some of that. Like with any instrument, 
um, there is normal drift. So you want to ensure that you're staying calibrated. And there's several ways that you can do that is just, you know, you have frequent sessions, you refresh your training, make sure you're introducing new things, checking yourself by having blind samples to make sure that you are, in fact, being unbiased, Um, even spiking a sample with an acid or you know, another note to make sure that, yes, I I can pick up when there's a defect or I can pick up when there's a higher intensity. But there's different ways of ensuring that once you get calibrated, you want to stay calibrated. And, you know, the benefits of, of doing all of this training and calibration, right? You get alignment and consistent communication, both internally and externally. And that's why these global tools with the flavor wheel and the lexicon are great because if we all start using the same tools, we start speaking the same language and we're better able to really share each other's experiences. Um, From a quality control program, you have a sound quality program that again, you can talk to a supplier, you can talk to a customer, and everyone understands what it is you're, you're communicating. Um, Doing market assessments when you have, and I'm sure there's going to be ample opportunity throughout the show, of tasting coffees from, I know there's a range from Hawaii, there's another from all the specialty coffees from around the world. As you do that, being able to assess those coffees and do it in a way that, oh, yes, this was given an 8.5. Okay, I can see that, or I'm not sure why that happened, because your level might not be, or your ability to determine and assess if it's not on the, using the same scale, that's where there can be some discrepancy. And, and, of course, that leads to miscommunication in terms of, well, I would give this a 4, but what were they looking for when they gave it the 8.5? Are you looking at the same attributes? And then, of course, being able to talk to a customer and be credible about, yes, this is what this coffee tastes like. These are the notes it has. Um, you will always get that consistency. These are the methods that we use to ensure that. It really helps. And I I think um, certainly that's why you have the Q grading and the R grading systems. You know, it's to start with that consistent communication. It's giving everybody to a page where they are hopefully able to appreciate, oh, yes, I'm tasting malic acid or I'm tasting citric acid. Um, It's ensuring that when we communicate about what's in our coffee, again, we can appreciate and agree that, yeah, you know, this is how we would rate this, and this is how, um, if we make a change, this is how it would impact those flavor notes. So getting into the lexicon and this um, tool that was developed by the World Coffee Research Association, uh, you know, a lexicon by definition, so universal language, basically a dictionary, and it is a source for these key attributes that we find in coffee. Um, When you have one source, and you capture the majority of the attributes, you, lead, you get to consistency. So again, when we look at a, a, a coffee and we assess it, the flavor profile, we're all getting to the same um, agreement on, yes, this has chocolatey, fruity, um, and a certain sweetness, and, and we know that that's the coffee that we're going to, we can expect to taste. So this was a great example of of collaborative work that was done, um, both from an academic standpoint as well as an industry standpoint. And the document that they created, and I'll show you a a couple pages here in a second, um, 
it really was a great way that, that collaboration led to this uh, output that ha- was, you know, 110 descriptors, um, and that encompasses both flavors and aromas and some texture. Um, and it tells you, so, and we'll see it here in a second, for every attribute, there's a definition of what that attribute would encompass. And then it's quantified, um, or how to quantify it. They give you an example of how if you wanted to smell and taste this particular attribute to know what it means, you know how to prepare it. And then that makes it replicable because you go, okay, once you train on this is you know, blueberry at a seven intensity, when you taste it in a coffee, you're able to say, oh, you know what, that's not that intense, so I'll give that a four. Um, And so that makes it replicable if you're always using the same reference point. The key caveat, I think, which is great with a document like this, though, is it was developed in a particular snapshot in time. You know, things continue to change. We continue to learn more. So it's considered an evolving or a living document, and there is actually an opportunity to introduce new attributes um, if it's warranted and you can show that, guess what, of what we're tasting in this particular coffee, none of the 110 attributes actually capture it, and this would be the frame of reference. So there is actually even opportunity to continue to let this uh, lexicon expand. Um, so it is considered a living document that will continue to be updated as more information is found. And I think that's a key thing with these tools is, you know, they're... They're, they take a time commitment, but it is well worth it because um, you know it, it continues to be ways for us to speak that same language, to better communicate and share our passion. Um, and like I said, for me, from a scientific standpoint, you know, it just completely resonates that we can be so helpful to each other um, because the scientists come at it from one angle and the coffee experts come at it from one angle. But together, we're all after the same thing, and it's kind of unlocking the mysteries of that bean, right? Um, And it is an incredible uh, experience when you think of just how many flavor profiles there are to unlock, and then all the great research that could be done, because one of the big questions out there today is, you know, continuing to have a healthy crop. We have roya out there, there's insects, there's seasonal variations... You know, you want to ensure um, that there's more research that could be done to ensure that we have a healthier plant. Maybe it's making the Arabica more more like the Robusta in terms of its hardiness, but you don't want to compromise the flavor profile. So all of these are, as we unlock the flavors and we can help determine what drives those flavors, then we figure out how to preserve those flavors. So kind of my little soapbox there for a minute, but... Um, back to the lexicon. <laughs> um, you know, as I mentioned, it's a great example of a sensory science application. Um, they tasted 105 coffees from 14 different countries, and then they had a trained panel, and as the trained panel tasted all of these different coffees, they generated, um, I think they actually started off with 70-something, and then as they tasted more and went through the different exercises, they arrived at 110 by the time they encompassed both the flavor and the aroma and texture components. And, you know, for any statistical um, 
driven people out there, they use the principal component analysis, which is essentially a mapping method to help ensure that as they were getting these flavors, they were actually truly different from each other and they warranted their own specific definition. Um, if you want to read more, there's a great article in the Journal of uh, Sensory Studies that was done by Dr. Edgar Chambers, who spearheaded a lot of this work at Kansas State. Um, feel free to check that out for more information. And so how do you use the lexicon, right? Um, as I mentioned, you have an attribute name. They then de define what that attribute is. They then provide references for if you want to experience that reference. Um, it tells you where to go, what it is, how to prepare it, and then depending if you follow that preparation method, it's given an intensity score from 0 to 15. So if you prepare as, as instructed, you'll be able to experience that, and that begins your calibration. So I'm going to do a quick escape here, show you that lexicon. So this is the uh, just an example, and it's a, it's a large document, but it's a PDF that can be downloaded. And so if we look at some of the berries, so you can see raspberry, light, sweet, fruity, floral, slightly sour, and musty aromatic associated with raspberries. They recommend doing the jello raspberry, which is a dry gelatin powder, and then you prepare it down to you know a one-ounce cup, cover with a plastic lid, and when you um, taste that, that represents an intensity of 6.5 on a flavor scale. For the blueberry, there's both a flavor and an aroma uh, preparation. So again, you know, as you're using the lexicon, I mean, it's, it's great because you can go get the sample, establish your reference. It sets the intensity for you, so everything that you then cup in a coffee is relative to this scale. But once you're consistent in how you're using the scale, then you're starting to get calibrated. So that's just, you know, you can see how combined with cupping, combined with the flavor wheel, um, this lexicon is a great supplemental training tool. So then we go to the flavor wheel. And now the flavor wheel, I'm sure as most of you know, it's been around a couple decades, and um, certainly for the time that it was brought in, was or first developed, was very useful to the industry, right? Better than nothing, a great frame of reference based on the information at that time. And similar to the lexicon, you know, this is also a living document. And so last year, or you know, the years, a couple of years before, using the lexicon, um, the flavor wheel is essentially a visual representation of the findings from the lexicon. Um, and that is great because then that means, again, so we've already got two tools now that are synced up in the language they're speaking, the way they're representing it. And so if you employ uh, these particular tools, you start getting calibrated, you start developing consistency, and you're starting to streamline the way you're assessing your products. So uh, the interesting to note thing to note with both the lexicon as well as the flavor wheel is that they don't cover defects per se. There are some flavors in there like cardboard or musty or papery, um, but you know defects are kind of their own category and they're more taints. Um, those were not covered at this time, 
so if you're doing defects, that's kind of a separate program. Um, but certainly, you know, for the more favorable attributes, um, the lexicon and, and the flavor wheel are great tools. So how do you use the flavor wheel, right? It's a beautiful picture. Um, essentially developed or, or essentially has three tiers. So if you start with the innermost circle, um, those are what we call general flavor camps. So you've got your sweet, your floral, fruity, nutty, spices, roasted, other. What's other? Um, green, vegetative. But this is if you're just starting off, you've got a cup of coffee and you're going, let's just taste it. We don't have those fine-tuned taste buds yet. Let's just see if we can get it into these broad, general flavor camps. And so that's where you can potentially start saying, okay, yeah, I can taste this. Or in some instances, you could spike the sample too to say, okay, so that's what, you know, using that reference, let's spike it and see if we can up that intensity of a particular note that we think is there, but it's not there enough for us to detect. So that's just kind of general, let's just get used to putting flavors into a specific or broad camp. You do that a couple times, or you know, enough to where you're comfortable, then you're ready to maybe go to the second tier, where you start going into the umbrella terms. And this is where you're breaking down or delineating a little bit. You know, so when I taste sweet, is it a brown sugar sweet? Is it a vanilla sweet? Is it a vanillin sweet? You know, what what is it that I'm really tasting? So it's taking that general term into something that is more uh, defined and, and trying to really understand what is the source of, of that sweetness. Um, same thing with uh, when you look at the spices, and is it brown spice, pepper, or pungent? Pretty different terms, and you can see where you're, you're getting to that next level of, of uh, advancement and understanding. And then when you feel like, okay, we're, we're doing pretty good, but now when I taste uh, fruit, I can tell you, or if it's a berry, I can start determining whether it's a raspberry or a blueberry or a strawberry or a blackberry. Um, that's really that third tier, and that's actually the tier that the lexicon encompasses, is they started with that third tier. And so everything on the outside of that scale, or, or that third tier of flavors, is captured in the lexicon. So those are the flavors that, hey, I, I don't understand what they mean by blackberry. I don't eat blackberries. What does a blackberry taste like? Um, that's where you, you know, refer to the lexicon, see how they define it, do the reference, and then go, okay, so when that's the flavor, that's how I describe that flavor when I taste it in coffee. Um, the other interesting thing about the wheel is you'll notice there are some spaces, and what they tried, of course, this was developed using you know, a lot of statistical programming, um, the, even the, uh, the sorting when it was done with all the different flavors. I was actually one of the, the people that participated on the online, here's 99 attributes, feel free to sort it, um, because they took, out the, uh, they took out the aromatic part of it. So that brought it down to 99, and we were asked to, here's all these different flavors, start sorting into how you would break it down into different categories. So after all the great statistical analysis that was done, they tried to group the flavors by similarities. So the ones that are really close together are flavors that are similar to each other. But then when they had, you know, obviously if you just place it in a wheel, um, 
not there's these breaks where the flavors really aren't similar, but they have to be on the wheel. So they put a gap to represent that you know there really isn't a similarity between these flavors. So then you're just jumping to another category of flavors. So that's where you've got the uh, I think it's the floral and the berry are next to each other, but there's a break in between because from when you go from a blackberry to a rose, you can see where they don't they don't really belong to each other, but you know, in certain camps, they're, they're somewhat similar. So that's where, you know, again, living document, but it's a great tool to at least start establishing that framework, start establishing some basic language. And then as you use it, when we all start referring to the same thing, we're really able to share our experiences. And so as, you know, as you advance through the wheel in your taste bud and you're able to define your flavors, you know, you go from saying, I taste fruity, to, hmm, that's berry. Oh, that's definitely blueberry, or that's definitely strawberry. Um, you know, practice using your frames of reference, doing your calibration. It is um, possible to get your panel to where they are operating on that third tier over time, and then you're really able to capture your flavor profiles and the, those flavor nuances that exist for your different... Uh, coffee flavors, coffee profiles. So, you know, hopefully these are both, a lot of work went into both these tools. Um, It's great examples of collaboration, as I mentioned, between academia and the industry. And I, for one, am personally rooting for a lot more of that. Um, And I do think that, you know, with these particular tools, it really helps you to learn how to recognize these different flavors and aromas, which become really key because, again, whether it's trying to preserve them to make sure that as we make changes genetically that we're preserving the good things about the coffee or just saying, hey, I just want to make a good cup to sell to my customers. Um, obviously, different, different purposes and visions depending on where you're at in the industry, but you know, these are great tools to have regardless of, of what your end goal is. Um, standardizing terms being able to profile those coffees so we can talk to, to each other. And, you know, it comes back to taking the time to train your teams and your employees using these tools. Um, you get calibration and consistency. You are able to share that knowledge, again, internally and externally, potentially globally, and I think that is the goal. Right now, these tools are a little, or, or they are U.S.-centric, but the goal is you have to start somewhere. And obviously, that's why they're living documents. As we start talking to each other more globally, um, that global standardization will, standardization will continue to progress. And the more we can build the product knowledge, the more we can build information about these wonderful profiles that we have, um, you know, certainly we can uh, do more to, to, again, share the experiences as well as um, get more information and, and understanding uh, how to keep the industry going, going strong. So along those lines, um, you know, where is sensory science and, and how it uh, fits into the coffee industry today? Um, you know, I'm pretty sure it, 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 sometimes it is occurring in larger companies. Um, you know, when you start seeing all these different products, you start seeing, you know, iterations of whether it's the nitrogen brewed or the uh, cold brewed or 
however they, they choose to um, market some of these different products. Obviously, they're doing the sensory science to be able to make sure that those are successful when they hit the market. Um, that could be challenging to do in smaller companies, right? It's resource, it's time, it's money. Um, research labs, though, I think, you know, obviously that's why they're part of the resources at the end from a suggestion standpoint is, you know, your research labs are probably a good place to start if you want to get started and you don't have the internal capacity to do so. Um, and then I, you know, um, Sean was pretty adamant about the, the non-foodies or the non-century folks, um, you know, really they do what they can, but um, there is a need for, for um, continuing to work more closely with the food scientists, with the sensory scientists, um, because today the non-sensory guys um, do struggle in terms of connecting the dots um, between that flavor performance as well as um, the other attributes that you're looking at for your coffee. So, you know, I, I think the good news is it is possible to customize a program to suit your business model. I mean, if you're a small company, you typically have fewer resources, a more reserved budget. Um, with a larger company, you do have more resources and a more elastic budget. But I think if there are people here from a large company, they may or may not agree that's not always the case because it does feel like sometimes the money is always tight and they want to do something else with it. So um, I think what it comes down to is it's actually more of a time commitment. If regardless of your size, if you commit to uh, saying, you know, we are going to employ these basic sensory principles, we're going to become more streamlined so we can communicate better with the industry, you commit the time because these tools are readily available, the flavor wheel, the lexicon, Cupping is already done. It's just a matter of bringing all of those tools together to build a consistent quality program or, or century program. And it, it is a time commitment because it's practice. It's investing in, you know, getting references, doing the training. And so you, you need to make that commitment. So formalizing, um, you know, your sensory practices, I mentioned. Doing the training, making sure that you have someone either internally that is already adept that could help the team through or finding someone external to consult. Um, incorporating simple best practices, which I actually, I'll cover in the next slide. Uh, documentation. Every time you profile, every time you sit down and have a discussion and developing, because it could be that, you know, obviously there's 110 attributes. You are not going to cover all 110 attributes in a single set, a setting, but it's, it's that range or the ability to choose from that 110. As you go through your different profiles, it'll encompass some subset of that. But again, it's sitting down and making sure that you all agree that you're describing it the same way and documenting that, yep, this profile, this coffee from this particular region has these key flavor notes, and so that now we know what to expect. If they don't, is that a cause for concern or not? Um, exploring the different sensory and preference testing. You want to understand if someone prefers one particular profile over another. Uh, you can certainly, there are, you know, as I mentioned, the triangle test, do a trio. There's some really basic tests that could be done internally um, that could help you make those kinds of decisions. But it comes back to committing the time and the resources to build your toolbox, to build your program, and saying, this is how we're going to do this. We've, you know, documented a particular protocol. They always use this method every time. 
that gets you your consistency, and that's how you get the objectivity built into your program. So some of those simple best practices. Minimizing the awareness of your samples. So remember that inherent bias I mentioned um, a little while back? You know, we all have it. And if you cup coffees a lot, you will, you know, ultimately have where you might be able to look at a green coffee and go, oh, yeah, that looks like it's from wherever. Or you look at the brewed cup or you look at the roasted bean and go, yeah, that got over-roasted. So the goal is you almost want to minimize. You have someone else prepare the coffee, and then you do it blind, which means you use randomized three-digit codes on the coffee. So any bias that you have to saying, well, yeah, when I know it comes from this region, it doesn't taste as great, or it always has this note, you want to eliminate those biases as much as possible. So having someone else prepare, and then just presenting the coffee in, with randomized three-digit codes, you're going in blind, and you're just going, I'm just evaluating based on what is in front of me. I have no preconceived notions, and that's the best way to, again, be as objective about your evaluation as possible. You may have two people, you may have 12 people. Um, train and evaluate with as many people as are available. Um, you know, it's not about quantity as much as it is about quality. Now, from a statistical standpoint, an ideal-sized panel is about five to six people. Um, but the reality is, again, just depending on your business model, you might just want to make sure that what you're producing satisfies your needs. So just make sure that internally, however many people you want involved in that decision and being a part of that, you help train and, and help them learn how to evaluate objectively. And like I said, start calibrating using the flavor wheel and the lexicon. Document and build your library. Every time you sit down, make sure you agree on this is how we're going to evaluate, this is the pro procedure we're going to use, and that's what we do every single time. This is how frequently we're going to do this. This is how frequently we're going to throw in maybe a blind control or a reference point. Um, build in that protocol, build your library of knowledge, and over time you'd be amazed at how rich that data becomes and comes back, as I mentioned before, repetition and practice a lot. So, I mean, I think already a lot of people here cup daily. Believe me, you know a lot, but you have to be careful about some of those biases that you may have developed over time. So the goal is to really get to that more objective place. And I would challenge you, and like the next time you do sit down to do something, think about how conscious you are of, am I doing it the same way every time? Am I being consistent in how I'm evaluating? Or is it just how I feel today? And I don't feel so great, I'm kind of tired, but I'm going to just crank through these because they need to get done. It might impact your judgment or how you, how you, what your results look like. So just some additional resources, um, you know, for saying, look, this, this could be a really good thing. I think I want to move down this path. Um, you know, investing in a sensory scientist or, or just hiring or consulting. There are a lot of very eager sensory science students um, that are more than happy to help help the industry um, and could be great, great resources um, to help just get the basics in, into, your, into your particular um, business model. Um, statistical program, 
you know, investing in a statistical program, there are a few of them out there. They're not that expensive, and it's better than, of course, if you have tables, that's good too, but the programs, again, um, you know, helps you to, to get that objective and, and the reproducibility in your information. Uh, documentation software. Sometimes it's easy if you have a specification, you want to set up a template, um, you're always capturing the same information so that when you go back over time, you can either see, wow, you know, we're really seeing a drop in quality with our coffee that we're getting for, from this particular place. Is that something we need to be concerned about? Do we need to be concerned about supply? Am I using it in a lot of my products? What will that do to my product offering? So all of these types of questions, um, if you are you know, doing the proper capturing of information, you are in a position to make some good decisions that don't get you caught in, in a bad spot. Um, doing external sensory and consumer testing. A lot of times it's just easier, and there are a lot of lab services out there, um, you can hire these, these testing out. And, you know, they're more than happy, of course, for price uh, to do it. But a lot of the universities are good sources for, for doing uh, sensory and consumer testing at an affordable price. And then there are a lot of independent coffee experts and labs out there. Um, I see a couple of familiar faces in here that they do a great job um, when you're in need of, of some of those, you know, just an independent assessment there are a lot of uh, reasonable um, services that can really help you uh, learn more about, about your product. So, are there any questions for me? Yes, there's a live mic if you don't mind. Most of the uh, specialty coffee grows in Africa and South America. I grow a specialty coffee in Colombia. And uh, we have different fruits and flavors from the one that you have in your will. How do you use that? How do you recommend us to use those, those flavors? Uh, well, something pointful. Have you ever tried a passion fruit, for example? Yes. Do you relate that passion fruit with a citric, like a lemon? Or what is your recommendation to us uh, to kind of explain you what we mean and, we, and, and what we have? Sure, um, and so that's, that's a great question, and I know that has come up um, before because, of course, not dif different regions have, and, and that's part of, again, the cultural impact, um, the regional, the geographical impact of what we taste and what we, how we assess those tastes. Now, within passion fruit, there might be some elements of some of the other fruits that are already captured, and so whether you can take that passion fruit and break it down. I'm trying to think in terms of, you know, all the different descriptors in the, in the, in the uh, it's, uh, you know, it wouldn't be in the berry group, for example. Um, but that could be an example, I think, of where it, either it could be so, you know, where you could go, well, maybe it's more in terms of sweet and maybe slight tartness. If, if there's a way to build the profile another way, um, that's one, one angle. The other angle is, like I said, is since it's a living document, it might be passion fruit might need its own attribute. You might need to create that attribute, but you would need to show why it's different and it isn't relatable to another fruit that might already be captured. Um, I know there is also... Um, further out, but there are characterizing chemicals in different fruits. 
So in bananas, isoamyl acetate, could you make the chemical compound or version of that? And then you could say, you know, for you guys, it would be like, well, do you have anything that tastes familiar to this isoamyl acetate? And you go, yeah, well, that's what we call a banana. Um, so there could be a way to break it down into its more basic chemical roots that that's part of why we're trying to build the lexicon. It's like I said, we have to start somewhere. But I do think that continues to be an area where um, it would be interesting, though, to have the team look at that coffee and see how they would describe it versus calling it the passion fruit. Because like I said, you know, is there a bit of grapefruit maybe mixed in with some of the um, more tart, sweeter elements? So it, it, we probably built it up combining other fruits didn't call it passion fruit. Does that make sense? Okay. But like I said, it, you know, that's where if you do feel like there is a distinct flavor that is not captured, there is a way to reach out to the, the lexicon community and actually say, we think this is not captured. Um, here's the frame of reference that you want to use, and this, this is why. And then there is opportunity to add it or amend. So it's a great point. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, my name is Fanny and I'm French. And I don't get most of the references of the lexicon because they are really US focused. Yeah. So how should I train? <laughs> Come over for a sabbatical. <laughs> and so it, it's, I know they had said there might be, what they were trying to do is find a way to, and, and that's where I mentioned, either bringing those references down to their chemical root and trying to then produce that in mass that could be shipped all over the world, or actually if, if there was an interest, there could be a way to then say, can we reach out and have a package? Um, it, it's interesting, this was all part of the discussion at the Century Summit uh, last January when these tools were launched, because there is a gap. There is a gap with that global connection. Um, and so there's just more work to be done. So I know right now, though, there is, you know, you could say, when you come to the U.S., can we put some samples together and ship it back home and use that as a reference um, for now? But there is that need to, and I, I thought there was a particular flavor lab that was working on getting to those chemical roots that could then be sent more globally um, and shared so that you can, because it is, it's key, you really cannot standardize unless you're using the same points of reference. Um, but that is definitely a gap that I know there is work being done to address. So, sorry, I don't have a more firm answer other than while you're here, go shop for some of that Smuckers and Jello and, <laughs> and put it all together. Sure. Any other questions? Um, if you do have uh, any additional questions, um, please feel free to reach out, contact us. Um, you know, happy to to be here, be a part of this. Um, and like I said, I, I think we are just entering our journey with sensory science. So a lot of work to be done, but also really exciting to see the industry going along this path because I think it'll just lead to more good things. So thank you, everybody. You've been listening to a talk from the SCA Lectures podcast series. 
To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.scanews.coffee and subscribe to this lecture series. Thanks for listening.